Hello and welcome. I'm your host Petri, and this show helps you to build your company. This episode is full of viruses, security threats, ransomware, but most of all, how you should protect your company. I'm very excited to have a global security expert Mikko Hyppönen with us today. Let's get started. Hello Mikko, welcome. Well, hello Petri, and thanks for having me. It's so great to have you here. I think it's almost like 10 years we we seen each other eye to eye. Yeah, yeah. Time flies, but that's that's the way it goes. And they tell me it's only going faster year by year. Maybe we're getting old. Oh, no, no, don't say that. How many of the Fortune 500 companies are being hacked right now? I know exactly how many. Well, Fi- tell me. Well, 500 of the 500 are being hacked right now. How is that possible? It's pretty pretty easy, actually. Um, one of the main challenges we have in information security is that complexity is the enemy of security. The more complex your networks are, the harder they are to defend. The bigger your networks are, the harder they are to defend. And every single Fortune 500 company has more than 100,000 workstations. And if you have 100,000 workstations, I can tell you what you have. You have a breach and you have it right now. You simply cannot control every single one of your laptops, desktops, and servers at the same time without having at least a minor breach somewhere at every time. That's quite depressing, isn't it? Well, it is and it isn't. I I guess it's a good example of the the attitude change that we surely need in the world of computers, um, especially in large companies, there's massive investment being put into trying to secure the data, to, to fight against data leaks, against data breaches, against hacks. And when you've invested hundreds of thousands or millions into your security systems and firewalls and intrusion prevention mechanisms, the last thing you want to think about is that those would fail. And that's exactly what you should be thinking about. You should be thinking about that how will you detect when your defenses fail? How do you detect that you have a breach? Because that changes your mindset from trying to keep all the badness out at all times to realizing that there will be a breach and you will have to be able to detect the breach very quickly if you want to be able to react to the breach. That reminds me of Netflix, you know, the philosophy of that you know, all the, uh, you know, the servers are failing and they have to be resilient. Mm-hmm. How viable is this actually for smaller companies like startups? Fortune 500, they have a bit more resources than a company with 100 people, 50 people, 20 people. Yeah, it's a little bit different, but I I suppose there are some general truths about trying to protect your data and trying to protect your privacy, which applies at all levels, all the way from enterprises to small companies to medium-sized companies to startups to individuals, Um, like like things that speed is the enemy of security, which is another truth. Complexity is the enemy of security. Speed is the enemy of security. And especially with startups, um, this is a, a very common pitfall. The faster you move, the faster you develop, the faster you deploy, the less time you have for bug checking or quality assurance or testing. And that is just something you have to take into account whether you whether you like it or not. 
So what are your top tips for startups? And let's just take the regular startup, which is not, well, every company is a software company, but I mean that they may not exactly be just, you know, just building software, but just general security in a company. Then we can go more into the software mm-hmm. development company. Um, well, first of all, starting a startup has changed so much from the technology point of view to what it used to be. Like, like I know it feels funny nowadays, but but starting a startup used to mean that you bought a server. Like the first one of the first things you did is that when you start hiring people, you get facilities where you can work from. Then you buy a server so you can have email. And of course, nowadays nobody runs their own email server. And this is a great example on how how cloudification has made it so much easier to start new companies. You don't need infrastructure. You don't need to own anything. And when you grow, since everything is in the cloud, it's just a punch of the button to have more resources for file storage or websites or, or servers. So I guess my, my, my tip here is to trust the cloud. Cloud works. Most startups choose to go for for AWS or Azure or Google Cloud Engine, not just because they give you this um, versatility, but also because they are more secure. Microsoft, Amazon, and Google invest millions and millions to secure these cloud networks. Normal companies can never afford the same level of security. So it is a good idea to use the cloud, but of course you have to use it right if everything is in the cloud, then the crucial part is the authentication. Like what kind of password mechanisms and authentication mechanisms you use? Do you share passwords with users? Do your users use the same password everywhere? Things like these. So, you know, the technology can enable so much good, but you have to be able to use it right. Does this apply only for the big guys, uh, Googles and AWSs? You don't see what's happening at the other end. So where's the limit? When should you really do some DD to the suppliers? Can you trust the smaller service providers? Yeah, this is a very tough problem. Like, how do you know that your suppliers do what you want them to do, not just what they promise to do? One of the biggest problems uh, we've seen in practice over the last year in information security has been widespread supply chain problems. Some of these have made general headlines, like the SolarWinds saga. SolarWinds is a U.S. publicly listed company which makes IT management systems for very large networks. And the idea in supply chain attacks is that if the attacker wants to break into an organization's network but can't because the organization has protected themselves good enough, then they find another way in. They figure out the technology the target is using and hack the providers of that technology instead. So, for example, in the SolarWinds case, we don't know exactly which U.S. agency was the target, uh, but the Chinese wanted to break into a U.S. agency and couldn't do it. So then they hacked SolarWinds and simply waited for the target to apply the latest SolarWinds software into their network. And those were backdoored by the Chinese, which meant they they gained the access indirectly. And this is a hard problem to solve. In fact, if you follow this deep enough, eventually you end discussing about the security of the microcode in our CPUs. Like, how do you know exactly 
what Intel is doing inside the latest CPUs which you run in your computers or what's inside NVIDIA GPUs. And the fact is, these have become so complex that nobody knows anymore. This was actually one uh, question uh, a friend of mine wanted to ask, and it's related to exactly this hardware uh, thing. So uh, your phone is supposed to be the most secure device you have compared to your computers and laptops. That's what I learned by just doing a bit of research. Um, but can you really trust your Android? Because most of them are done in China and the hardware level there. So is there a secure Android phone? in a sense that you can be sure that there's no backdoors or is the data always piped to some government agencies or some other? Parties? Well, there's there's no guarantees, um, but that applies to everything. There's no guarantees your your Apple is 100% safe either or your iPhone is, is completely free of all possibilities of backdoors. We don't know. There's so many components coming from so many different suppliers. We just have to hope for the best. Um, regardless of that, um, your Android device is massively more secure than your MacBook laptop or your Windows desktop. So so traditional computers, like real computers, are not nearly as secure as these toys, these mobile phones. And and, and this is not the way we, we typically think about it. We, we think about, like, you know, real computers have real security, and then we have these mobile devices, which are just mobile devices. Actually, the operating systems like Android and iOS or iPad OS are massively more secure than your Windows 10 or your latest version of Mac OS. And this is because they are more restricted. Um, and, and this is a trade-off between restrictions and security. Um, and this isn't so easy to see, especially from the point of view of a normal end user. Like if you give someone um, a brand new M1 MacBook, and a brand new iPad Pro with an integrated keyboard, they're basically the same device. Um, yeah, okay, the iPad has a touchscreen, but otherwise it's the same. You can do everything with both of them. They're very powerful. You can browse the web, you can play games, you can you know, use Photoshop, you can do everything with both of them. But there is one crucial exception, which is that MacBook is a computer. And if you are a programmer, you can sit down and write a program for your computer, and once you've written your program, then you can run your program on your own device, and you can give your program to your friend, and he can run it on his device, and you cannot, you're not allowed to do this on your iPad. You are, you're, you're banned from doing this. This is forbidden. The only way you are allowed to run your own program on your own iPad is that you write the program, and then you send it to Apple. To, to California to be approved. And if Apple agrees and approves and, and, and blesses your program, then and only then you get the right to run it on your own device. And this is a very, very restrictive model, but it's also a very secure model. And it's the same model we see elsewhere, like in, in your PlayStation or in your Xbox. That's the same model. Those are also very, very restrictive environments. Basically, they are computers, just like any other computer, but it's a computer you, the owner, don't have the right to program, and you can only run the programs which have been approved by the vendor. And the, the fact is, Microsoft, one of the largest operating system manufacturers on the planet, 
the most secure version of Windows that they are shipping right now is inside Xbox. I mean, it's inside a goddamn games console. Isn't that weird? <laughs> well, that's quite a funny. Now I understand why some are actually having these business meetings in some of the multiplayer games. Yeah, yeah. I've computer. actually seen someone was doing meeting inside of Fortnite, which is, I mean, if you disagree with someone else in the meeting, you can just shoot them. Yeah, I heard that. Sometimes it's an unintended consequence, but maybe sometimes it's just a bit of venting you out. <laughs> <laughs> How about then, if you're building a just a software company startup and uh, you need to basically own the cloud for the other people, you're responsible of the data. How do you secure that data? What are the other measures you need to take into account? When you starting from scratch, maybe it's just uh, yourself and a dog. Maybe you're building a new company, Mikko, and, and you start to build it from scratch. But you, you're planning to make it to 20, 50, 100, 500 people and more. So um, how do you do it right the first time? And how do you scale it you know, later on? Are there different steps as well? Well, how would I know? I've always been working at the same company and it's not my company. So I haven't grown a startup from a man and a but dog. You were there from pretty much from the beginning, weren't you? Yeah, I was an early employee with F-Secure, but it's not my company. So that's not really the same thing, is it? But um, Yeah, that's true. But I, I guess you see quite a I've, lot. I've seen a company grow. Is, I'll, I'll give yeah. you that. Sure, sure. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, we've done so many mistakes over the years with, with F-Secure. So I, I think that's one of the best ways to learn, really. Um, but one thing I think is a universal fact um, is that, you know, don't try to invent stuff which has already been invented. Um, and, and this nowadays with, with all the access to shared open source code and things like GitHub and, and Stack Overflow and well-documented and understood libraries um, make this possible. And I think perfect example on on, on avoiding pitfalls when you're trying to build services for others is that don't try to implement complex things like encryption algorithms like that's that's going to fail you you will not get it right uh, and we do have known tested trusted algorithms which do get it right um, and, and that's that's the perfect way of thinking about this and it's also a question about like like when you see opportunity you don't always have to take it. You, you should really consider it. I remember very well um, in the early years of F-Secure, back then when the company was still called Data Fellows, when the web um, started growing uh, and Netscape, the browser, invented this great new innovation, SSL encryption, which we nowadays call TSL encryption. That's the HTTPS connection between, between different services. Initially, it was only meant for, for online shops. So if you wanted to buy something online, you needed a way to encrypt your credit card numbers. That's the initial use case for SSL and HTTPS. And I remember we realized that, hey, there's a new business here because for this encryption to work, there has to be a certificate. And a certificate has to be issued, basically sold by someone. And, and in practice, that certificate is just a text file. It's just a text file. You're selling nothing. You're selling trust. Certificate vendors sell trust that you can trust us to safeguard these certificates and, and make sure they are issued to the right parties. So we considered whether we should go, whether F-Secure should go into this certificate 
um, vendor business, whether we should start selling these. And and we realized early on that there might be a you know business opportunity there because if you're only selling trust, well, Finland is one of the most trustworthy countries on the planet according to different um, different uh, institutions. And we already had been around for a couple of years, so we considered ourselves to be a trustworthy partner. So so we did consider going into this business. However, after doing some thinking about it, then we decided not to do it. Uh, no, it's it, we, we want to stick with uh, endpoint security solutions and software security solutions. We're not going to do it. And of course, in hindsight, we lost, I don't know, millions and millions in money because we probably could have you know there were very few vendors in the business at the, that early early time back then one of the biggest success stories started next year and they started from well well not from one of the least corrupted countries in the world they started from south africa and that was the company called thavte which later sold itself to very sign for a billion dollars and the founder Mr. Mark Shuttleworth went on to start Ubuntu with the money he made from that business dealing. However, no hard feelings. We did not miss that opportunity. We we saw the opportunity. We saw that here's something we could do and we thought it through and we actively decided not to do it. I would have much bigger remorse if if we would have missed that opportunity. And we didn't miss it. We decided not to pursue it. And that might have been the wrong decision, but I have no regrets about it. Do you think it's still possible to, to build a startup who is in the security business and your main clients are big corporates because you need that trust and you need to basically build somehow that credibility? Or is that just basically the established companies game nowadays? It is possible to start new startups. We see it happening all the time. Um, but the challenge you mentioned is a very real challenge. And, and a typical way startups try to tackle that nowadays is by building advisory boards and bringing in known and trusted figures who can vouch for the company, go through the technology, and then use their reputation to to vote for it. And and um, that seems to work to, to some stage. But it's 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 a little bit weird seeing... Um, new startups entering this picture with completely different business models than what I used to know and think. I, I, I had a very interesting, very eye-opening meeting um, maybe three years ago. I was at Google uh, in, in, in California, and there was this Google Cloud Engine meetup. And uh, during the lunch break, I ended up sitting next to these two Dutch guys. And they had this startup from somewhere close to Amsterdam where they had hired, they've taken in gazillions of VC money and used the money to hire PhDs in AI, which of course are very hard to get, but you get them if you have the money. So they've spent all of their investment to hire these brains. And what they were doing didn't make much sense to me at all because they were building this this, uh, machine learning mechanism to detect anomalies inside processes inside Google Cloud Engine. And I couldn't figure out how they would make any money with that. Obviously, this was a very expensive operation to run, and I couldn't see how they could make it profitable. So I asked the guy, the founder, that, okay, so so what, what exactly is your business model? And he told me that, well, we have no business model. We're just trying to get acquired by Google. Wow. <laughs> I haven't Have checked you? lately, but I'm pretty pretty sure they did get acquired by Google. Well, that's a high bet strategy, isn't it? If you know, if you're just doing it for the Google. Well, you know, what's the downside? Your company doesn't succeed; it doesn't get bought by Google, and then VCs will lose their money. 
and you lose your time building the company. Yeah, okay, that that's true. That's true. Maybe that's why that's well, it's not that easy, isn't it? But it, it was a really eye-opening discussion. I I didn't I mean I tried for the life of me to figure out how do they make any money with this and the answer was they weren't trying to make any money with it. This reminds me of another conversation you had. Was it also with Google? Was it even in the same same lunch where you made the the parties really silent and nobody wanted to talk anymore? I know what you're referring to, but that meeting wasn't at Google California. That was actually at Google Switzerland. I, I managed to crash the mood of a lunch meeting. Um, we were having lunch with maybe 10 Google engineers and chit-chatting about this and that and games and TV series and what have you. And then I started talking about nation states and attacks against uh, players which store the world's data, the big cloud providers. And, and the, the, the thought I just floated was that isn't it, isn't it so that the biggest intelligence agencies on the planet wouldn't be doing their job if they weren't already trying to get moles to work inside the biggest cloud providers on the planet, like have their own employees recruited to work inside AWS or Azure or Google. And and everybody was like, like nodding their heads. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, they probably are trying to do that. Yeah, yeah, which means they probably are foreign intelligence agency moles working inside Google. And and then everybody started looking at each other around the table back and forth, and and everybody went awfully silent. And <laughs> it wasn't. It, it, you end up in a really paranoid situation where you start to suspect your workmates to work for a foreign intelligence agency. I would imagine that you just didn't kill just the lunch, but probably that's something you cannot erase ever from working on those companies and, and in, in that field. Because how can you? Because that's basically what happens. And isn't that actually what's happening more and more nowadays? How, how can you describe the situation nowadays that uh, there's government agencies actively hacking companies and doing stuff and they're trying to find all the possible cyberware available to just find these hacks and exploits? But then there's also the temptation to utilize that for the gain of the uh, private companies as well. So there's a lot of people knocking on your doors, at least virtually. That's correct. And the whole idea of governments writing malware would have been so hard to believe early on during my career. I mean, when I started analyzing malware in the early 1990s, all of the viruses were being written by, by teenage boys for fun. And, and, and it was sort of like a fun game that we were playing against them. Like we would find a new virus and we would try to decode it. And of course, The, the virus writers were trying to make it hard for us to figure out how the code worked. So they had encrypted it and there's all kind of booby traps and we would find all of them and decrypt their, their, their riddles and solve them and name the new virus and add detection. And then excitedly, we were waiting for the next case, sort of like a, you know, playing a game of chess against an unknown enemy. But anyway, a game, that's what it felt like in the early days. Even though it was a business, like we were selling antivirus solutions, but this is how it felt like. But then, slowly and surely, it's changed. And all these 
happy hackers of yesteryear have disappeared. And nowadays it's all about organized crime gangs making tons of money with ransomware and banking trojans and, and keyloggers. Or it's what you were just referring to, governments, um, intelligence agencies, militaries, which use offensive cyber power for espionage and for sabotage, and in extreme cases for waging war as as well. And it has totally changed the the nature and the value of software vulnerabilities or exploits that target software vulnerabilities. Is this sort of the theme of this decade now that it's getting more like a ordinary thing and, and another type of thing we have to take care of and so it's, it's not just the, the ransomware which is quite uh, dominant nowadays but also that uh, if you're building something which has a potentially high value that you have to be quite paranoid and now i start to understand the uh, ceos who are running their business just on their mobile or maybe they from the xbox <laughs> i don't think any executive is running their business from the xbox yet but it, it might <laughs> yet. be a stupid idea yeah but but yeah if you think about cyber weapons whether you use it for espionage or sabotage they make a lot of sense cyber weapons make a lot of sense from the point of view of the attackers from the point of view of of nation states when you compare cyber weapons to traditional weapons Um, cyber weapons are effective, affordable, and deniable. You have a weapon which is affordable. It's cheap. It gets the job done, and you can deny that it wasn't us. And this is something you cannot do with traditional weapons like a B-52 doing bombing runs, but you end up with comparable end results. And for example, if you think about Stuxnet from 2010, probably United States and Israel were able to to delay the Iranian nuclear enrichment program by maybe 18 months, purely with software attacks. And of course, they could have done a physical attack instead. They could have done a B-52 run and bombed down the Natan's enrichment plant or or what any supporting facilities around it. Um, But it was probably cheaper and more effective to do it with a piece of malware. And the best part, it's deniable. Uh, We know it was United States and Israel. They are still denying it today. And there's no way for us to prove this. What uh, should you do as a CEO, as a company owner or or private party just trying to do your business? and, And then there are these huge resources available for the government agencies and, and other parties who are trying to uh, knock on your doors, not in the nice way. You should realize that you, as a business leader, have limited resources to fight against these problems. So you should put your resources into the right place. And that means you have to do your threat assessments correctly. You have to understand who is likely to attack you. Who who are you fighting against? Because you don't want to use your limited resources to fight against an enemy which is never going to attack you. So, should you worry about nation states? Is your company a target for foreign intelligence agencies? Um, Do you have to worry about activists? Do you do something which will make 
people angry at your business. For example, if you, I don't know, mine, p- pump oil out of the ground, people will have very strong feelings about that. Nowadays, people people might have very strong feelings about mining cryptocurrencies, for example. So that, that will create attitudes against your organization and you have to, in some cases, fight attacks done by those people. Or do you have to worry about criminals, people who are interested in, in stealing from you? Or do you have to worry about corporate espionage? Do you have to worry about parties which will like to like to make you look bad or embarrass you? Do you have enemies? And the answers to these questions are different for different organizations. If you have a company which, you know, I don't know, delivers food, um, that's a very good target for financially motivated attacks, but it's unlikely to be a target for foreign intelligence agencies. Like there's nothing interesting in there from the point of view of 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 foreign intelligence agencies. They, they don't they don't need to know who ordered which pizza at what time. That's not the most important piece of information. They would much rather target governmental targets or military targets or military contractors or targets like that. But it all starts from understanding who are you, what is your business, what do you do, who would like to hurt you, who would like to steal from you. And when you have an understanding of that, then and only then you can start to put your limited resources and limited budget into the right place. Are there countries, mm, geographical locations, which are better if you have sensitive security stuff or data? You have a limited resources, maybe you're not a big corporation yet, but is there some governments who are more friendly to support you and, and lend their resources and actively sort of be the big brother for you in a positive way against these other big brothers who are trying to knock on the door or... Do you just need to be suspicious of anyone who is trying to help you? I don't really think that any government is doing a good job in defending their citizens or the companies in that country against foreign threats. I I think this is still, if this is going to happen, it's yet to happen. And and. I had a very interesting discussion here in Finland with one of the generals of the Finnish military. And and the question I had was, okay, who who defends Finland against cyberspace attacks? And he told me that, well, he's not sure, but definitely it's not them. It's not the military. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not their job. They defend Finland's independence against foreign attacks, but that's in their mandate. There's nothing about defending against attacks in cyberspace. So yeah, he, but it's a foreign attack still if it's done by a foreign party. So I think it's semantics in a way, isn't no, it? No, no. They, they have no mandate to work there at all. They can't give orders. They don't have the resources. It's not their job. And and this seems to be a pretty common story around the world. And geopolitics definitely play a part. Um, we see this being a vendor F-Secure as a vendor in this space, one of the biggest uh, computer security vendors out of Europe, um, which sounds fancy, but it's not saying much because Europe doesn't have very big security software vendors at all. There's basically um, a handful. Some companies you might know, some companies you probably don't know. Companies like uh, Sophos and Avast and Avira and 
you know, F secure. Um, but really big players come from outside of Europe. They come from the United States, they come from Asia, and they come from Russia. Um, and then when we go into the global marketplace as a European vendor, especially as a Finnish vendor, this sometimes does matter. Um, I've been in discussions where companies are interested in, in consulting services or software security services, but they don't want to buy Chinese and they don't want to buy Russian and they don't want to buy American. And then you have much less options left there. And Finland as a neutral country, pretty neutral actually, even the fact that Finland is not part of NATO has been in, in some of these discussions. Um, and again, one of the least corrupted countries in the world, this has at some discussions been to our advantage. Um, not always, obviously, but sometimes it does matter. And this is something which um, I think, I hope we would be able to use more to our advantage. And overall, I'm really, really disheartened by the lack of technology leadership out of all of Europe. I mean, when we look at the biggest technology success stories which come out of Europe, we, we have pretty much nothing. And when we do have the rare success story, it's almost always fairly quickly sold either to the West or to the East, as we've seen. And, and we really should be doing better. I, I think one of the most de de demoralizing lists I've seen recently was there was a list of publicly listed, like stock exchange listed technology companies out of Europe. And the list, the, the first two entries on the list were Accenture and Prosus. And of course, Accenture it is headquartered in Ireland, but I don't really think it's a European company. I think most people don't think about it as a European company. And second of all, I don't really think it's an IT company either, but that, or a technology company either. But it was the biggest based on on stock value. Number two, Prosus. That's actually South African company, not European company at all. It's just listed in Amsterdam Stock Exchange, and their valuation doesn't come from anything which has anything to do with Europe, really. Their valuation comes from the fact that they were early investors in Tencent and maybe in Alibaba as well. So it doesn't get much worse than that, does it? Like the European success stories are South African companies investing in China. It also puts me to think that maybe that's also one of the strategies that buy them early before they come to peak. So you can get them to the US or Chinese or whatever jurisdiction you want to have them. Yeah, and I think jurisdiction and, and regulations and rules may be part of the problem. Obviously, Europe doesn't have a unified common marketplace like United States, for example. But then again, Europe is much bigger than United States. In fact, it's quite remarkable when you look at the amount of internet users and then different regions of the world, United States, when you look at the amount of internet users, is so tiny, it doesn't even matter. There's obviously much more users coming from Asia, more users coming from Africa, twice as many internet users in Europe than in United States. There's more internet users from South America, yet all the services we use outside of local media are U.S. services, U.S. cloud, U.S. operating systems, U.S. search engines, U.S. social media. 
it, it's 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 remarkable how well they've been able to rule and become the kings of the internet. And, and this might now slowly be changing. If you look at, for example, Alexa, which lists the most visited websites in the world, out of the top 15 websites in the world, uh, eight are now Chinese and seven are from the United States. And we have examples like uh, the TikTok uh, policies, the data security or non-security. And there's a lot of these things where Europeans have already for some time been the ones who are just taking whatever is given. And, and I guess the Americans are also starting to experience this now that there are things that uh, which are built in Asia and China and other parts of the world and you are not basically telling what to do or you're sort of feeling not so comfortable mm-hmm. and, and probably things are not customized. How do you see the future in, in, in this field? This is exactly the reason why we've seen US leaders, especially Trump, react with these knee-jerk reactions when they realize that suddenly the most downloaded mobile application in the world is not American. In fact, it's coming from China. Well, then they have to do something. Then they have to ban it. Or um, when when they realize that vendors like Huawei or Xiaomi are, are you know, becoming a very real threat to the local US-based mobile phone vendors, they have to artificially restrict access to these technologies. And I think Xiaomi is a great example, and Huawei as well. If you forget about the infrastructure and base station and 5G discussion for a while, and just think about handsets. You look at the most sold mobile phones in Europe, you look at the top 10 lists, and you have you know, OnePlus and Xiaomi and Huawei on every list, pretty much in every country. Then you go to the United States and you won't find them in the top 30 at all because you can't buy them. I mean, you have to jump through hoops to find them in any meaningful way. Uh, and that's not natural at all. That this is Obviously, there are worries about national security, but I think there's also very strong hints about trade war where USA... Um, is realizing that China is is very much rising. And, and the same reaction we see from USA now against applications like TikTok, well, that's the same situation where we Europeans have been for years and years. Like, like the technology and the applications and the solutions we use are not local. They're being built in faraway places by regimes which don't care about us and our rules and our traditions and our legislation at all and who won't sit down to to discuss these these details with us at all. That's what we've been working with in Europe for, for years and years. And now when the Americans for the first time are faced with the same situation, um, it seems to be a very tough lesson for them. You did an experiment some time ago that you tried to live without Google. How did that go? Oh, it failed spectacularly. It's 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 not possible. I uh, I'm not challenging anyone to try it because you won't succeed. Sure, living without a search engine that's that's doable, but that's not Google. Google is everywhere. Um, if you want to live without Google. Um, you have to avoid all of their services, uh, G- Gmail, Google Docs, 
Google Analytics, Google Ads. Every website you visit is loading Google Analytics and using that to track you. You can try to find your ways around that, but it's 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 hard and painful. And then you have services like YouTube. This is what broke my back. Um, people sending me links like, hey, this is very important. Check out this video. And it's on YouTube. What the hell am I supposed to do? The only way I can watch the video is use Google services, YouTube, to watch the video. Or I choose not to watch the video. And that simply was not an option in some of the work cases I had. So I, I gave up. User, I mean, Google has become too big. You cannot avoid it anymore. It is, it is everywhere. Related question. Is it actually possible to browse the web even just refusing all the cookies, you know, refusing all these trackers? I, I think technically that's possible, but is it like that you're just reading basically text files which are just garbage? Yeah, you, you can do it. Um, nobody really does it, but it is doable. Sure, there's, there's so many ways of tracking you. Um, I mean, if you, you couldn't really load any other content than basic text um, to do it, which pretty much nobody does. Um, and in some ways, uh, I mean, if you want to find a balance of what makes sense, like where, where's the balance that you can actually protect your privacy at the basic level, but still use all the good resources we have online, we have to accept some level of tracking. Um there's no turning back anymore. We did have a time, we did have a chance of monetizing uh, the online services, which would not have involved any kind of tracking. Um, but that's too late now. Now, if you remember when 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 first web browsers became common, like Netscape 1.0.n made its breakthrough and suddenly everybody started browsing the web. Those were the good times. Absolutely, the best times. I remember the the, the mystery in the early days um, to me was was how are we going to pay for all of this? Because when Gopher was going away and we got HTTP and it was so easy to use, we had graphical user interfaces, we had images, you could click on links. I realized that this is going to be huge. Everybody will be using this and we will have so many services online we will have like websites with information with news with weather reports maybe one day we will have i don't know movies on the internet that's what i thought around 1994 1995 but then then i realized that hold on hold on if you're gonna have all these um valuable services online um how exactly are we going to pay for them like like clearly for example, newspapers or TV channels are not going to move their services from their current business model to the web if they, there's no way for them to get paid. And I, I was thinking about this, and I, I came to the conclusion that surely Netscape and other browser manufacturers will integrate a payment button into the interface. Like you go to read a piece of news and there's a pop-up say, hi, do you want to read this? This cost you two cents. And there's a button and you click the button and you pay two cents. And it somehow deducts it from your credit card or some online payment system. And then you get to read the thing. I was imagining micropayments. I mean, obviously, obviously, this is the way it's going to be. There will be micropayments built into the browsers and we will pay for content as we need, uh, as we wish. 
And now it's 2021, and we still don't have the micropayment button in our browsers. 404 instead of 402. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right. There is a protocol for that. We, we could. It's all in theory there. And, and, and even the rise of electric currencies and virtual currencies and blockchain solutions, even that hasn't made this reality. Nowadays, the closest we have to that is the Brave browser, which has the BAT currency payments built in. But, you know, that's not in Chrome or in Safari, which is what everybody is using. So instead of paying for content with money, the history made this weird turn and we ended up into this world where we are living today, where we pay for content with privacy. We don't pay for content with money. We pay for content with privacy. If I want to watch cat videos on YouTube, I can't pay money for that. I have to let Google to profile me, build dossiers of me and what kind of videos I watch and what else am I doing elsewhere on the web and who's my friend and who's my enemy and then sell that information, sell that profile, sell that dossier to advertisers or in extreme cases to sell it for um, uh, election campaigns so they can use that to, to target people who vote. And this is, I mean, we were close. We, we, we could have chosen a different future, but we failed to do it and it's too late. Was it really an option in the early days or was it just uh, laziness of the people and, and it's just too difficult to pay for everything? I, I totally, totally think it was an option. I, I think we just failed to capitalize on that. We, there were some early, early attempts um, Digicash, for example, in the early 1990s, was trying to get this off the ground. One of the problems back then was that there was so much opposition from banks and credit card companies, which hated the idea early on. But clearly, users were taking all this brand new technology into use for the first time. And if part of the onboarding process would have been to include your payment information so you can pay for the content online, I think people would have done it. Uh, it wasn't simple to, to build the current infrastructure where all this profiling is being done and, and turned into money. And nobody would have believed how much money there is in this online profiling business. But of course, nowadays, when you look at the revenues of, of Google and the likes of them, it is massively large amount of money, which is being done with this profiling today. You mentioned somewhere that uh, our generation will be remembered uh, what we did, and that's we killed the privacy. Yeah, yeah, we did. I mean, we were given um, a free and open internet. Like you and me, Petri, we were given a free and open internet. That's what we got. And the question is, what kind of an internet are we leaving for the future generations? Will it still be free? Will it still be open? And And it doesn't look very good. The biggest innovations of our time the internet and, and and the mobile phone and all this digitalization revolution, they've given us so much good and so much bad. I believe internet is the best and the worst innovation of our time. I think we have a maybe a second chance, and that's the some call it Web 3.0, the decentralized world. 
And many of these people who are building it now are the from the generation of our age uh, who experienced the open source movement and, and the early open internet as well. Because the protocols are back. Now they are in a, in a cryptos basically happening. So I think there's still some hope. But uh, maybe that's just the pendulum going from the centralized to decentralized. But uh, do you have any insights on the decentralization uh, move or trend? Because certainly um, it looks like that you cannot trust anybody with your own data because it will be leaked. It's just a matter of when, it's not if it's going to be leaked. So we need to just keep very tightly to our private keys. How, how does it work? I think most of the users online are lazy and they will go through the past of least resistance and use the services that they know and are used to using. And and since users have been online on Facebook for 15 years now, I think they will be online on Facebook forever, regardless of new innovation we see happening. So if there will be Web 3.0, it is on the shoulders of the next generation. They are the ones that have to build it, and they are the ones that have to start using it instead of the old services being built by the 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 gorillas of the Silicon Valley. And I do believe there is real and important innovation in the space of decentralized systems and also in the space of blockchain. And I know blockchain has a really varied reputation. Uh, some people believe in blockchain solutions like religion and others are certain that any project which involves anything to do with blockchain is just a scam. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, and, 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 and I do believe that the innovation of modern blockchain, especially the blockchain as described by Satoshi Nakamoto in 2008, that is one of the big innovations of our time. And I, I know how to detect, how to tell when an innovation is big and important. Um, an innovation is a major innovation when you explain the innovation to someone else and, and they are like, huh, like, is that it? Like, that's pretty obvious. And that's exactly what blockchain was. It's just a list of transactions built so that every transaction is unchangeable forever and public forever. That's it. That, like, that's the innovation. You can say it in one phrase. And when you explain it, people are like, huh, well, that's pretty obvious. Well, yes, it is pretty obvious now that it's been invented, but it wasn't obvious before it was invented. And this is how you can tell that it's a big innovation. When once someone invents it, it's obvious, but it wasn't before. And, and, and the solutions that you can build with transaction lists, which are public and unchangeable forever, are so much bigger than just financial services. There are so many other things we can build with these things, with blockchain-based solutions, which we still have to innovate. But the basic building block is there. And I I'd like to believe that the future is decentralized. What's your take on the NFTs? NFTs. I think it's it's really really interesting, but it's not quite there yet. Um, I, we're missing some piece of the puzzle, and I can't articulate what it is. But those of you who have played any 
any games where you collect things, you, you know how valuable those things become, even though it's completely virtual. And even if there's no real money payment involved at all, if you play some RPG and you finally manage to collect uh, something to build a really rare sword, and you know that in the whole global game, there's only like three of these swords and you have one, that's really valuable. And in fact, if you could, you probably would pay real money for a sword like that. If you, when you combine that mindset and the collectability, um, the, the fact that we like to collect things and hoard things, it's built into us. When you combine that with math, which can prove that you are the only owner of a digital good, I do believe there's something there. But it's it's probably still a couple of years into the future until this really makes the connection. And, and then we have another problem to solve, which applies to almost all blockchain solutions, which means it applies to almost all NFT solutions, which is the, the impact on environment. Indeed. Uh, but for the environment part, I've been thinking also that it's easy to see the, the cost of electricity, and, and, and that's obviously there. But the other question is that what is it replacing? What does it take to actually have the physical? Uh, you know, maybe not in the games, but if you're doing physical art and, and you have to get all those resources, there's a lot of logistics involved. Maybe you need to heat the buildings to have the calories, and people are doing uh, traveling to get there, and and then they shipping those things. So these are not so easy to see. And and my hunch feeling is that probably you know. These are actually more because when it's digital, you know, there's no atoms involved. And usually when you have atoms, you have to transport them and, and use a lot of energy to, to move them around or manipulate them. I, I think I have two points about environmental impact of technology, especially about mining and all that. But the first thing is practical, which is, Traditional mining for proof of work involved in blockchain solutions, it's pretty obvious that the one with the cheapest energy wins. So the solution is pretty easy. We just have to tax um, non-renewable energy a little bit more. So it's a little bit more expensive, a tiny amount more expensive than recyclable energy. And every miner will naturally automatically migrate to the renewable sources. Um, so taxation in the short run is the easy solution for environmental impact. Um, the long-term impact is more like, uh, more ideological. I mean, every digitalization idea uses energy and clearly we don't want to go backwards. We don't want to steer away from new innovation in technology. Yeah, sure. Watching Netflix movies is bad for the environment, but we still want to do it. Doing Google searches is bad for the environment, but we don't want to get rid of Google. Mining for proof of work is bad for the environment, but all of these I'm confident, can be solved with technology itself. So steering away from technology, steering away from digitalization is the wrong answer. 
In fact, if we want to do anything, we should we should double the stakes and put more effort into technological advancement because that's going to be the thing which will save the planet. Now, there will be an innovation with technology which will allow us to reverse global warming one way or another, whether it is directly extracting carbon from the atmosphere and getting rid of it safely or or whatever it will be. It will be technology which makes this possible. So we don't want to go back to where we were 100 years ago. No, we want to go to where we will be in 100 years in the future. We must not try to limit technology. We must use technology to save the planet. I'm actually just uh, thinking now, coming a bit more, maybe about fun stuff for a while. You You don't think saving the planet is fun, Petri? Uh, it is a thrill when you're building new companies and that's what I'm doing basically as a living, just building the future. Yeah, it is. It is a lot of fun, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> I'm just thinking that in order not to just uh, talk about these things, more heavier, deeper topics, I uh, just want to have some fun for a while because I, I think it's a few minutes we've been laughing. Well, you just did. Um, one of your first projects uh, you forgot something we needed to demonstrate and, and you did something which usually would get people fired. Can, can you tell what happened to the Saab uh, <laughs> 900 Turbo? One of the biggest practical failures of my career um, in the very beginning of my career, the very first job I had when I joined F-Secure um, had nothing to do with security. Um, early on, the company was doing lots of custom projects for clients, and I was in charge of a factory automation project for a for a large Helsinki-based factory. And the project was late and overdue, and it wasn't progressing as as we wanted to. So, just a regular software project, wasn't it? Yeah, like they always are. But this was my first, and I was. I was late and inexperienced, and I was very junior at the time. This was my first Windows project as well. They wanted to completely renew the systems they used inside the factory to run on Windows 3.0, which was the latest and greatest at the time. No internet. Uh, Obviously no internet, yes. 3.0 still didn't support internet, even with outside drivers. Windows 3.1 then supported Vinsock Trumpet, which then changed the world, but... The CTO of the company um, got fed up with the late project. So he called me and said he wants to see a demo. He wants to see where we are. So he's going to invite his group together. He wants me to come over tomorrow and do a demo to show where we are. So I worked very late in the evening to try to get it as done as possible. Then I went to the office early in the morning. Our offices at the time were in Hietalahti. And then I jumped on tram to drive from Hietalahti to Arabian Ranta to show the demo. And when I get there, I go to the meeting room. They're all there. And the CTO is sitting at the end of the table. And I'm 22, I think, at the time. And I open up my back and I realize that I left the floppy disk with the demo at the office. Classic. I, I can't show the thing that I worked on for weeks, that I worked through the night, because I forgot the floppy disk in the disk drive, which is at the office. And the CTO was furious. 
He didn't believe me. He thought I was just buying time. He was confident I had nothing to show and I was just trying to cancel the meeting and that it's just a story. So I told him, no, 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 I, I, I do have it. It's just at the office. So he said, okay, fine, we'll wait. We'll sit here in the room and we wait for you to pick the floppy and you come back with it. And I told him, yeah, sure, I'll do it, but I don't have a car. So it's going to take, I don't know, an hour and a half for me to, to drive through the city with the tram. So he gave me his car keys. So I got into his brand new Saab 9000 to go and pick up the floppy. And as soon as I get out of the parking lot, I crashed his car. Immediately. <laughs> <laughs> so within the five minutes of going out of the building. <laughs> yes, yes. And I remember I, I, I told this story to someone and, and he was just horrified. And, and he asked me, that, oh, my God. How on earth did you ever get another job in software industry again? And I answered to him that actually I didn't because I'm still working at the same company today. How did you actually get the floppy? Um, I, I didn't crash the car so bad it wasn't undrivable. It was a fender bender. But trust okay. me, it was bad enough. Yeah, I can imagine. But usually if there's another party, unless you just uh, went to whatever wall, you need to sort it out, and that takes uh, time. No, well. I crashed into a parked car, and I, I, I left a note and carried on with my Fender Bender Sub 9000 Turbo. Well, those things happen, I guess. Like the other time, you were sort of too eager to do a update on the website. Oh, yeah. That's another great example of, of failures early on. Um, I don't know if you know this, but, but F-Secure had one of the first websites in Europe, definitely one of the first websites in Finland. This was in April 1994. And I know this because I set up the first website for the company. Was it running on a Netscape server? Uh, it was actually running on a Solaris custom server at the time. HTTP servers were fairly easy to implement if you had a very small site, which is what we did. I think we had like three pages and a couple of images on the first site. But uh, fun fact, it was the same Solaris server, which was also our file server and and uh, our email server. So if someone would have like broken into our website, they could have gained access to our emails as well, which is pretty horrifying to think about. But hey, that's the way things were in 1994. And I was maintaining the system partially from the Solaris system itself and partially from my MS-DOS based PC, which was running PC, TCP um, drivers. And those drivers did not support symbolic links. Oh, well, they did, but they, they turned symbolic links into hard links, which basically means if you delete a folder with symbolic links, if you do it from Solaris side, it just deletes the link. If you do it from MS-DOS, it actually follows the link and deletes everything underneath the link as well. And after we had been running our website for a couple of months, I was doing some cleanup because I had a full hard drive on my MS-DOS computer and I deleted a temporary folder and it had a soft link to our website, which ended up deleting the whole site. So I deleted our website and we had no backup. Whoops. <laughs> I remember going to Risto, that's Risto Silasma. And explaining to him that, yeah, sorry, Mr. CEO, I, uh, I've deleted our, our website and we have no backup. So e-commerce business is down now. Well, I don't think we had e-commerce at the time, uh, but it's it was pretty bad. But hey, I'm still working here today. 
Christo is a really forgiving man. Um, yes, I, uh, I I can't thank him enough. Actually, he, he wrote an excellent book a few years back, and I think that's one of his principles, isn't it? That you have to you know give a try to a lot of things and make some mistakes as well. At all times, you have to keep your paranoid optimist thoughts in order. That's the way he thinks, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why I'm still employed there today. Is there anything else you could have? Because I, I really love the book, you know, the Risto's book, and if somebody hasn't read it, I, I recommend to read it. It's at least one of the best books, or maybe even the best books I have read about uh, board work as well and, and corporate governance, but it's a bit of a thriller as well, and also how to save Nokia and what happened in Nokia as well. So there's a lot of things happening in that book, so it's only recommended. Yeah, and uh, one of my favorite details in the book is, is going through the actual practical dealings when Nokia mobile phones was sold to microsoft it's just fascinating to to read the descriptions about the like really f- physical armies of lawyers um getting together at a hotel in new york where you have boardrooms filled with with paper contracts stacked like meter high And like going through of signing every contract and double checking that every patent is mentioned, that everything is in order. And then the board members join and do the actual signing. Like when you do business exchanges, which matter in, in billions of dollars, that's the way you actually do it in, in practice. And I, I, I rarely remember reading about that from anywhere. This reminds me of the terms and services. So have you read them? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, sometimes I do, but you know, as you know, it takes forever. And 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 the fact is, even our terms and services are full of god awful things. Like like our um, F Secure software includes clauses like even if there is a bug in our code which deletes all of your data by accident and you tell us about it we don't have to do anything about it we don't have to fix and you're in charge of all the costs and we know people don't read terms and conditions we tested this we, we set up a free wi-fi hotspot in downtown london on piccadilly circus a couple of years ago called f secure free wi-fi and and we got dozens of people signing up for for free internet access and accepting our terms and conditions, which were the usual 10 pages of legalese, which among other things mentioned that if you use our Wi-Fi, you, you will have to give your firstborn child to F-Secure. And if you don't have children, then we will take your favorite pet. How many pets you have in the office? We did have a discussion that we actually should go and pick up a couple of kids, but but um, I was voted down. We never did any of that, but we would have had the right. How do you handle a security crisis if that happens to your company? If it's the first time, I would recommend getting outside help and getting it immediately. And in fact, I would recommend getting outside help for both the technical part and the communication part. These are hard to do and they're hard to do at the same time. And it's also the reason why I recommend companies rehearse this, that companies take the time from their business schedules to do uh, trial runs, being run most likely by an outsider who will run it like a war game. Like, here's the situation. This is what's happening. What are you doing now? Okay, you did that. Here's the new situation. Here's how it affected the situation. 
what are you doing now? Because that's the only way to learn about things that will affect um, um, uh, the environment when you are inside of crises. And I'd like to think I have a lot of experience in, in working in the middle of info, information security crisis because I was running our labs through all the massively large malware outbreaks of the early 2000s. Like if you remember 2001 and 2002 and 2003, we, we, we regularly saw Love Letter and Blaster and Slammer and Sasser, these outbreaks which started from initial infection and then within a couple of hours affected the whole world. And that meant my phone was ringing at 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. And then I was working 24 hours trying to put out the fires. And when we got the technical fixes in place, then I spent the next hours answering phone calls from CNN and MSNBC and BBC and explaining what, what, what just went down. So I, I think we built pretty good processes and infrastructure into handling big cases and it's very stressful but i can't deny it's also it's exciting i mean you you do feel very much alive when the phones are ringing off the hook and the whole world is 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 in on fire and you know that you and your team has the skills and the tools to put down the fire and then when you are able to do it in most extreme cases you shut down a crucial server used by the attackers and the whole attack stops, it, it, it does feel very good. And you, you have the adrenaline flowing in your blood and it's, it's, it's exciting. But of course, it's exciting only for a limit. Like when, when you get the fourth 2 a.m. wake-up call during the same week, it's, it's less and less exciting and more and more tiresome. Um, I'm I'm glad I lived through the virus years of the early 2000s. I wouldn't give them up for the world, but I'm also very happy that time is now behind me. You once say that security is like Tetris. You are, uh, your success disappears, but your failures pile up. So when everything is working, you don't get basically any recognition. And, and when obviously things are in red alarm, uh, everybody's sort of concerned about the things. And it's like what happened to the one of the biggest uh, ships in, in just a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. You are even visible from space. <laughs> That's uh, true. <laughs> so um, where should you start? I, I think it's too late when you have a ransomware attack happening and, and you start to think about, okay, I need to Google someone. Whoops, Google doesn't work. Yeah, that's why I so wholeheartedly recommend testing your defenses and doing trials and doing rehearsals. And I also recommend um, penetration tests. Like one of the best ways to figure out where your vulnerabilities are is to attack your own network. And if you don't have the know-how to do it yourself, you can hire an outsider, a, a good hacker to hack your systems. And then they will tell you how exactly they got in. And if you want to test your physical security, they will be able to do that as well. This is something we do quite a bit, both physical penetration testing, like basically trying to walk into companies and see whether we can gain access to data centers or, or confidential data or what have you, or hacking the networks of the systems. And I guess the thing there, which is remarkable, is that 
our success rates are very, very high. I mean, even when we do a repeat test, like we hack into a network, then we tell the company what we did. They fix the shortcomings. And then to make sure they fixed everything, they hire us again. And then we break in again, maybe finding some new mechanism. But in a way, it's also good to remember that most attackers are not like penetration testers. Most attackers are after the low-hanging fruit. Um, they will, they, they're looking for money. Most attackers are in it for money. Most attackers are not nation states or, or someone who has a beef with you and wants to make you look bad. Most attackers just want money, which means if your protections are just a little bit better than the average, then the attackers will go after the easier targets. You don't have to have perfect security if everyone else has poor security. And and this this means that um, when you do a penetration test, it's actually much more closer to testing against a targeted attack, like an intelligence agency, because they won't go after an easier target. They have a target, and they will go after that target only, which is what we do when we are hired to break into your network. Even if your network is well protected, we're not going to look for an easier target because we are hired to hack your network and your network only. So that gives a bit of comfort, but the uh, world is a big place, so it's relative to security, isn't it? Maybe you are the weakest link in, in some exploits. Well, and, then you uh, will find out. <laughs> eventually, at least. <laughs> uh, there's a bit of an anniversary. Brain A. It's not the first computer virus. I think that uh, award goes to the Apple users, mm-hmm. but it's pretty early and pretty famous and uh, you made a bit of a world tour as well yeah that's true that's true um brain makes history as being the first pc virus and that's important because i mean pc viruses are still today the biggest problem i mean that's where most of the malware problems today are and and pc problems started 35 years ago pretty much exactly 35 years ago in 1986 uh, the thing you are referring to is the the trip I did ten years ago on the twenty fifth anniversary of Brain because we had a meeting maybe six months before the twenty fifth anniversary of the f- first PC virus. Our marketing and PR teams invited me to an in- internal meeting where they they wanted to discuss whether we should do something about the twenty fifth anniversary and and they had ideas like we could have a uh, some awareness campaigns to tell people about malware problems. And I thought all that sounded really boring. So my input into the meeting was that why don't I just try to go and find the guys who wrote the first PC virus? And if I find them, then I can go and talk to them and ask, like, why did they do it? And and how do they feel about it and all that? And the reason why I, I, I brought this up is that I remembered that there's an address inside Brain virus, brain.a, the first virus for PCs from 1986, has a text hidden inside of it, which is a street address in the city of Lahore, which is in Pakistan. And the simplest thing would be just go to Google Maps and, and check the address and just uh, knock on the door and say, hey, would you like to have an interview? But, you know, that's 86 and uh, <laughs> Google Maps was not available at the time. And I guess that was even before your time in in the security business, so a long time. But what are the odds? What happened next? Yeah, 
the odds were quite surprising because what I learned was that indeed the same street address in uh, Akbama Illak Down in Pakistan still 25 years later hosted the same guys. The guys Basit and Amjad, the two guys who wrote the first PC virus, they are still there today, even today, 35 years later, because I keep in touch with these guys. They've never moved away from the place where they were living back then in 1986, when they wrote the first PC virus, where they put the street address inside the virus. When I went to visit them, they were there. They're still there today. In the text, uh, when the virus was printed, it says, beware of the virus, contact us for the vaccination. That's right. And I, 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 the answer to my biggest question, like, why did you write this? Basit and Amjad, why did you write the first PC virus? The answer was that they wanted to prove how insecure these new IBM PC computers were because these guys had a background from mainframe computers which had user accounts and security restrictions and then out comes the 8086 and IBM PC which has no restrictions, no user accounts, no nothing and they were horrified so they proved just how easy it would be for someone to write something like this and it became the biggest outbreak of its time spreading all over the world including computers in every city in Europe. But it only spread with uh, floppies. It spread at the same speed as, for example, COVID-19 is spreading right now. That's the speed of people traveling. The only way you can spread a human disease from one country to another is that someone travels from one country to another. Same thing with brain and all the other early floppy-based viruses. It required people to travel. You couldn't spread these over networks. You couldn't spread them over BBS systems or modems. You had to physically take a floppy and fly. Yet, brain went worldwide. Eventually, brain was even found from the Antarctica South Pole research stations. <laughs> It didn't even froze to death. <laughs> no, no, it survived everything. <laughs> like the Bluetooth stuff, which happened in the in the two thousands when people were just basically running around with their mobile phones and infecting people, and that's like the digital COVID, wasn't it? You needed a closer proximity to other people, and 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 then the only choice was basically to say yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, just like in order to get COVID nineteen, you have to be within a couple of meters of someone else, the, the first Bluetooth viruses for the Nokia Symbian devices, they were the same. You had to be close enough to an infected device with your device to get infected. And I remember when these early Bluetooth viruses were a very real problem, um, viruses like uh, Kabir and Comwarrior, um, very, very typical reaction from users, I mean, from people who, who heard about the problem was to blame the users, like stupid users. Why do you accept the incoming Bluetooth transmission? You could just decline and you would be fine. What an idiot getting infected with these Bluetooth viruses. It wasn't like that at all. The early Bluetooth user interface was very confusing. If you were close enough with your own clean phone to someone who had an infected phone, you couldn't use your phone. You couldn't do anything with your phone because the other device would constantly send you over and over and over again this request to accept an incoming file transmission. So if you took your 
phone from your pocket to make a phone call, you couldn't. The only way you could like do anything with the phone would be to to accept the incoming transmission so you could get rid of this query. Or the other option, which wasn't obvious, you could just walk away. You could leave the premises to go far away from the infected device, but that wasn't obvious at all. So the reason why people got infected with these early Bluetooth viruses was a user interface problem, a UX issue. Finally, in Symbian version 3, the user interface was changed, and this basically killed the whole Bluetooth problem, and we haven't seen Bluetooth viruses since. In a way, I think that history is just repeating itself over and over and over again. This is just a bit different technology, but the gameplay is the same, and, and it's getting more sophisticated. You can get... Uh, CEOs paying some uh, non-existing bills and, and the cons are just long and more sophisticated, but the basic principles are more or less the same. So the, just go through the history and find some good classics and rinse and repeat. We can look at every single data breach or data leak or malware outbreak. And when you look at the root cause, it's always the same. It's always either a technical problem like an unpatched system or a human problem, like a user opening the wrong attachment or clicking the wrong link. And that's the two root causes we will always find. Till we replace the human interface from there and just let the computers write the code. I, I can't wait for that. And I do think actually it's, it's going to happen. I think one, a very good way of understanding the intelligence explosion is to think about programs which program. Like if you have a program which understands its own code and can rewrite itself. It's pretty easy to, to understand how that would very quickly turn into something that you and me couldn't understand anymore and which would clearly become better. And uh, the performance of this program would get better and better until we couldn't understand the slightest what it does. This is what we speak about when we speak about intelligence explosion. And in some small, tiny way, this is happening already now with all these uh, AI systems or machine learning systems. But obviously, it's it's not something where they are self-conscious and can describe exactly what they're doing and explain it and, and then build a better version. But, but, uh, but even GPT-3 knows already how to program, which is pretty remarkable. Um, even the basic... Um, query interface of GPT-3 um, where you can like give it a prompt and it continues your prompt. If you speak German to it, it continues in German. If you speak Swedish, it continues in Swedish. If you speak in fin Finnish dialect like Savo, it continues in Savo. If you speak Perl to it, it will continue in Perl. When I saw this for the first time myself, I was really blown away. Like it, 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 You don't even have to tell it that, hey, this thing that I'm writing is in English or in Japanese. It, 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 it just knows. And this is it's awesome and scary at the same time. When can we expect uh, security work like that? So nobody does anything and it probably happens in uh, milliseconds and it's already over like in high-frequency trading, but you know there was a security threat and it was already analyzed and neutralized. Security software has been at the front of AI and machine learning for quite a while. Um, we started our first 
machine learning project in 2007, so 14 years ago. And today, none of the large-scale research laboratories, uh, laboratories could, could do their work without machine learning. There's just so much data to be analyzed, so many samples, so much network traffic. Um, so we try to put as much effort into machine learning for security purposes as possible, and it has been a great success story. And the best part is that maybe a bit surprisingly, we are not seeing the other side, the attackers using machine learning yet, which is remarkable. Clearly, they could. They could be using machine learning to create malware, which is able to rewrite its co own code to avoid detection or phishing attacks, which would detect which which what works, what doesn't, and adjust accordingly. But we aren't seeing that. And, and I guess the reason why it's not happening yet is that if you have the skills to build machine learning systems, you don't need to go into life of crime. You can find a very well-paying job because there's such a lack of skill in machine learning space today. But obviously, that is only going to help us for a little while. Eventually, using machine learning systems will become so simple, any idiot will be able to do it. And then we will start seeing malware using machine learning as well. How do you see the future in 5, 10, 15 years? What are the things what are you excited and, and what are the things you're not so excited about? Every time I walk the corridors of Slush or some other startup event like that, I get filled with this bus of, of happiness about how clever the upcoming generations seem to be and how they are thinking about the world differently and, and, and how there's so much innovation still to be done and how the digitalization revolution is only in the very beginning. We've only seen the very beginning. Unfortunately, we've only seen the very beginning of the problems as well. So I see a bright future and a future where we are more and more uh, dependent on technology. We, we, when technology becomes good enough, we can't, um, our societies won't work without that technology. Um, digitalization and, and internet is on its way of becoming mandatory. It's not there yet, but it will be in the future. And that is going to be one of the, one of the big um, weak spots of, of the future. But nevertheless, I'm an optimist and I think future looks great but we also have huge problems ahead of us. It's kind of crazy to think about uh, if, it, if, if we go to the 1880s, electricity was just coming and, you know, then 1920s, like 100 years ago, thinking electricity and how it was sort of changing the society. And you could maybe make an uh, analog uh, compare it to the internet as well. Mm -hmm. So that you know, we are like in the 1920s of electricity. That's right. That's That's a very good comparison in the sense that when technology is good enough, like electric grid is, is very nice. Um, it's so nice that today it's mandatory. No modern society survives without electricity. And if we get an extended power cut, like, I don't know, six months without electricity, um, nothing works. I mean, the whole society would crumble because we wouldn't be able to feed ourselves. We wouldn't be able to heat ourselves. We wouldn't be able to move. We wouldn't be able to communicate. And this is what's about to happen with internet connectivity. That's how crucial it will be. We're not there yet. And right now it might sound a bit far-fetched that cut on internet connectivity would crumble our societies, but that's what's going to happen. That's how mandatory it will be in 10, 20, 30 years. 
And in fact, it's so it's going to be so mandatory that eventually it's going to work the other way around. Because today, when power goes out, obviously internet goes out as well. Eventually, when internet goes out, it's going to cut power as well. If it's smart, it's vulnerable. That's the Hüppenen law. And it's a very pessimistic law, but it's also very true. What is your favorite word? My favorite word is hack. Hacking works. Hacking saves the world. And hacking is also one of the biggest threats to the world. So what I when I said earlier that the internet is one of the best and worst things during our time, this is exactly what it means. But um, I'm often asked if I'm a hacker myself. And I guess I am, but I don't really portray myself as a one because I know the word comes with heavy connotations and some people automatically assume that hacker means a criminal, which is not true. We have good hackers and bad hackers. And if I'm a hacker, I'm a good hacker. What is your least favorite word? My least favorite word is complexity. I mean, I'm a big fan of simplifying things or simplifying technology or simplifying thoughts. Um, complexity is the enemy of security. The more complex our systems are, the harder they are to secure. And if that's true, then it's pretty obvious what we should be doing. We should be trying to remove functionality with every new release of every piece of software. And that's not what we're doing at all. We're doing exactly the opposite. Every new version of every operating system and every application and every mobile app has more functions, more features, more layers, more protocols, making it harder and harder to secure our system. So that's my least favorite word. Just uh, maybe a startup idea, someone. Uh, your complexity is my margin. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Yeah. What turns you on, creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Sleep is very important for me, emotionally and creatively. I, I I'm happy to report I'm a good sleeper. Um, and during normal times, I travel a lot. I live in different time zones. I always sleep well, and I think that's my uh, superpower, and it's very important for me. What turns you off? meanness or mean people mean thoughts um it's just unnecessary and unneeded and such a turn off yeah meanness what is your favorite curse word oh that's easy that's perkele and i think finnish swear words are very international i think everybody understands that perkele means what it means What sound or noise do you love? I'll actually play it to you. So I'm a big nerd for old technology and, and uh, old games. So it's the hyperspace sound from Williams Stargate from 1982. That's my favorite sound. Wow. What sound or noise do you hate? I guess it's very simple. It's the sound of alarm clock, and that goes back to my superpower of sleeping. Are you demonstrating that as well? I'm not, <laughs> because I hate the sound. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? So if my profession today is um, a security expert, I think I'd like to try to be a professional game developer. 
um and and um it's probably not nearly as much fun when you do it professionally so i don't know maybe a hobbyist game developer maybe that's something i'll do when i retire i used to write games in the 1980s i even got some of my games published back then on those home computer systems so yeah maybe that's maybe that's the one what profession would you not like to do well i wouldn't like to be a priest that's pretty much as far as away from from me that i could think of Are you sure? You know, you are like a security priest, aren't you? I'm not a security <laughs> priest. Take that back right away. <laughs> If you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era, which one would you choose? If I could choose any era, any company, I would definitely choose 1972 Atari. That's such a heroic time that changed the world. And Atari had a really... Lousy fate, like many of the early game companies. But during the first 15 years, it must have been like magic. So, uh, yeah, that's what I would choose. Atari 1972 with Bushnell designing the first video games, the games which would change the world. It must have been really magical place to work at the time. I uh, recently visited the old Atari headquarters I have a lot of old Atari games, and when you read the manuals for the coin-op, the full-sized games, they they have at the back page the street address where the games were built. So I actually went there. I was visiting Apple, and uh, I had my rental car, so I drove 15 minutes from uh, the the Apple current Apple headquarters and and to the address where Atari used to be. It's now empty. Uh, it was for rent. The building is still there. It's the same building, um, but nobody's using it at the moment. And uh, I just walked around the building like a like a pilgrimage to see where magic was done all those years ago. And uh, I'm happy I did. I uh, I got nothing out of it except I saw where the world was changed so many years ago. And uh, yeah, I'm not a priest, but uh, maybe I did get some kind of a uh, mental feeling of togetherness with the feeling they had all those years ago. And even Steve Jobs was doing night shifts there. Even him. Yeah, that's right. He was working there. I believe it was not that same building. They were probably still in some garage back then. But yeah, it all comes together, doesn't it? Indeed. Small world. Small Very world. small world. It is. Any final words for the audience? It's all going to get better. I think we should be considering ourselves to be very lucky to be alive during these years. I mean, the mankind, human mankind has been around for 200,000 years. We happen to be alive during these defining years when we stopped living part of our lives in the real world and started living part of our lives in the online world. And that will be the norm forever. And it's this change is happening right now and we get to see it. So exciting times. Thanks for listening. Before we wrap up this episode, I just want to thank you for all your comments and feedback. It's always nice to hear what you think about the show. Did you know, I also have been doing book reviews and have plenty of recommendations for building your startup. Check out the resources in my website, petrikajander.com, my first name, last name, .com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.